Hi, it's John here. When it comes to doing business, acquiring the capital to launch a business or lead a business in Canada, there are no two ways about it. Men have historically had a huge advantage. And in 2020, there are concerns that the pandemic has tilted the playing field even more. A staggering 61% of female business founders have lost contracts, customers, and clients due to COVID. That's according to a new report from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Overall, female participation in the workforce fell to its lowest level in 30 years. We're going to need to rectify that for the recovery because women own and operate almost one third of all firms in Canada. And they start businesses one and a half times more often than men do, driving more than $117 billion of economic activity every year. But there's more than just gender at issue here. Education level matters, as does income level. And we know these things often break down along racial lines, leaving black, indigenous, and women of color at an even greater disadvantage. In fact, race and education are often bigger variables in unemployment than gender is. So what can we do about it? How can we support female entrepreneurs so that they can continue to contribute to the economy and lead the recovery at this critical time? Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Today, I'm sitting down with two successful female entrepreneurs to find out how they're steering their companies out of the dark shadows cast by the pandemic. But first, we're going to hear from someone who's made it her mission to support female entrepreneurs. Vicki Saunders, an entrepreneur herself, is the CEO and founder of SheEO. SheEO is a self-described global community of radically generous women, supporting women-led ventures working on the world's to-do list. Welcome to Disruptors, Vicki. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Vicki, let's start off with your own journey. Can you give us a sense of what's made you want to be an entrepreneur in the first place? I never really thought I'd be an entrepreneur when I was growing up because it wasn't actually a cool thing to do way back then. (laughs) But I knew that I wanted to do something that had a really big impact in the world since I was a little kid. And uh, I didn't really see anything out there that looked like something I would want to put my life towards. And so I ended up becoming an entrepreneur almost by accident, really. I happened to be in Prague when the wall fell down and everybody was dreaming about what they were going to do now that they were free. I remember hearing everyone like, now that I'm free, I'm going to do this. And now that I'm free, I'm going to do that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm free too. What am I going to do? And so I ended up starting a business and then another business and started being a real catalyst for entrepreneurship in general. I'm passionate about innovation, as I know you are, John, and I love looking at the challenges we're facing on the planet and coming up with unique solutions for it. So I now realize I am completely unemployable by anybody else. I just I love uh, creating my own rules and going after solutions. I'm not sure I agree with you on that last point of uh, employability, but (laughs) your reference to Prague and the wall is so compelling because historic moments, I mean, they define and shape each of our lives, but they also become transition points for society. And we're in one right now. Who knows where we're going to transition to? But when you started CEO back in 2015, uh, doubt you were thinking about a global pandemic and the criticality of female entrepreneurship to a recovery. But Give us a sense in the midst of this storm, how CEO is helping its founders get through it. 
in many ways feel like we were absolutely made for this moment. When you look at the challenges women entrepreneurs face, funding is one of them, but it's not the only thing. We also struggle with getting early customers, getting access to critical contracts at an early stage through networks, finding the advisors that really support us on our own terms. And so we designed our ecosystem-based model with CEO to come with all of those pieces. And so women contribute capital, $1,100 each into a pool. And then we put all of our energies, our buying power, our expertise, our networks, our influence into helping those ventures grow. So at a moment of a crisis, like the pandemic, as soon as that hit, we had thousands of women around the world who had funded uh, 68 ventures so far across four different countries come together and say, what do you need? And we did a very quick triaging of, are you red, yellow, or green? What's your risk factor as a business right now? And we started to really push our resources and our efforts towards those who are in a world of trouble. And we've been monitoring that every week since the pandemic began. And we're putting all of our efforts to help their innovations and their new approaches. And you'll hear from a couple of them today. We have lived in such a space of scarcity and isolation as entrepreneurs. It's kind of the mantra out there. You have to do it all yourself. Uh, and at CEO, you show up and you just you have a whole bunch of people on deck saying, how can I help you? So it's a it goes from this place of scarcity and isolation to abundance. And you basically have everything you need. You just need to ask for support. I, you know, I love that idea of going from scarcity to abundance. I love the fact that you've exported this uh, Canadian idea to uh, to the world. But in some ways, it sounds like a VC firm, but the VC firm that doesn't have jerks as partners. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've been kind of playing around with this term to, because it's such a new model that people are like, what is that thing? Is it a charity? I'm like, nope. Uh, is it a VC fund? Nope. Uh, but it's almost like the world's first nonprofit VC which is almost like an oxymoron in a sentence, but it really is. We are we contribute our money knowing that these ventures really matter. The 0% interest loan has a massive payback rate. In Canada, that's 100% payback rate. So that money just keeps flowing forward and we'll leave this as a legacy on the planet. Our goal is to get to a million women and a billion dollar fund, which will fund 10,000 women entrepreneurs around the world every year, forever. So give us a sense of uh, some of the stories you mentioned. Uh, how is this uh, working out in the real economy? Yeah, so huge challenges. So one of our ventures that was selected out of Vancouver is Nada. It's a zero waste grocery store. And then as soon as COVID hit, of course, this sort of bulk buying concept was at risk. And so they had to close down their store. One of our activators, which is the women who contribute capital, was in love with this business and came to them and said, can we put you online? We'd love to put your entire business online. And so pro bono, they like all hands on deck to go and solve this for Brienne and Allison, her partner at NADA. And they've managed to pivot everything and put it online. So from basically zero income from, you know, doing very well and profitable in their first year to zero income and now back up and doing incredibly well again. So this support from the community and that expertise on the spot was just huge for them. That's such a great story because it illustrates the power of more than money in, in what you're doing. The money is obviously essential, but entrepreneurs need advice. They need mentors. They need those networks. We've done a lot of research in RBC Economics about the gender-specific challenges of the crisis and also the opportunity for Canada to invest differently in the recovery to make it more sustainable, more resilient, and certainly more equitable. I've been speaking with Vicki Saunders, the CEO and founder of SheEO. Vicki, thanks for making the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. You're listening to RBC Disruptors. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Our focus this season is on the forces reshaping the Canadian economy, including COVID-19. 
we look at how we can plot a path, not just to recovery, to global leadership, with the help of some of the country's best, brightest, and most motivated minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there's a conversation you think we should have, please email us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com. Today, we're talking about how female founders cannot just survive, but lead the economic recovery. My next guests are two women who are familiar with the opportunities and obstacles entrepreneurs face in this country, and also know a lot about the challenges facing women of color. Nita Tandon is the founder and CEO of Dalcini Stainless Incorporated, which makes sustainable housewares. Thank you for having us. And Chenny Sia is the co-founder of GotCare, Canada's largest self-directed home care provider. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start with uh, how you both got started in entrepreneurship because your paths are quite different. Nita, maybe I can start with you. You've already had a successful career in pharma and biotech. What caused you to walk away from that and uh, kind of make the big bet on yourself? Well, you know, that's the interesting part is I never set out to become an entrepreneur. I had moved up fairly quickly in my career and I was doing a lot of travel. And I remember one day sitting in the hotel and I said, it just doesn't feel right. And I think, you know, women tend to work from this gut instinct or this intuition or just a different place. And everything was working out well on the surface, but my gut was saying, I, I, I'm in the wrong place. So I packed up everything and I moved to Ottawa. You know, I, I met my husband in 2009 and we ended up having our first um, child in 2010. So it all happened very quickly. The thing that I found really sort of stuck in my mind was the amount of chemicals that were ending up on, on products. And you know, if you remember back when BPA was banned and I would read all of these journals, these healthy scientific studies about the amount of BPA that was on food containers. And so for me, when I had my daughter in 2010, was really this thought process, which was, how do I do it better? And I, and I had to, you know, I think back to Oprah and who had this quote, and it's, it's always stuck with me, which is, when you know better, you do better. And I knew the science of the products that were there, and I wanted better food containers. Every household has food containers. And so if I wanted something different and I couldn't see it on the market, I needed to do something about it. And for me, that was the start of entrepreneurship. That's such a great uh, story, but it's also a really good way of framing entrepreneurship. I'm always struck by entrepreneurs, the serial entrepreneurs who say, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my next big idea. I've always thought, well, the ideas should find you, like they come from inside and the way you described it with that Oprah line that you, when you know better, you do better. And great entrepreneurs know better, not in an arrogant way, but they just take on something that they know. Jenny, give us a sense of how you got started or maybe you were born an entrepreneur. Yeah. So for me, for context, I grew up very, very poor. Like I remember eating animal crackers for lunch as a kid because money was tight for my family that month. So when I hit 18, I got my first job as an assistant to the CEO of a private equity firm, simply because I wanted to have a better understanding of how capital worked, because it wasn't working for me or for, let's just say, the world that I lived in. And I guess what I didn't expect was I also, therefore, got a front row seat to how entrepreneurship worked. So after a year of working that, I quit my job and founded my own design agency, which was my first business. So fast forward 10 years, I was working on this multi-year project with three of Canada's largest home health providers. And what I learned shook me to my core. So we did some pretty in-depth research and we found out was that 
you know, in some rural Ontario geographies, only a third of Canadians are receiving the care that they are already approved for. And also, like, for every 7,000 frontline workers that are trained using taxpayer money, 9,000 leave the industry. So we basically were looking at this and be like, okay, this is not a tweaking exercise. You know, we need to transform how this works completely. So along with my now co-founders, we essentially fired ourselves. And with the blessing of our previous clients, we built our own modern home care company. And um, now, two years later from that point, we've completely transformed how care is being delivered in the home. We've grown a community of thousands of frontline workers, and we can do that because we pay them much more than the industry standard. We are able to charge less, so patients' budgets go further because we use technology to streamline a lot of internal processes. And yeah, and I mean, we, we believe that the um, proof is in the pudding. So actually, just last month, we exceeded a million and a half annual recurring revenue. Jenny, if I can stick with you, I mean, the pandemic must be so central to what you're trying to, to build and what you're building is so critical to how we approach healthcare coming out of this crisis. How has it helped you or forced you to rethink your business? So first of all, I just want to say that our team is very aware of how lucky we are to be an essential healthcare service during this pandemic. So I think that's just something that is important to acknowledge. And so, yeah, so when COVID first hit, the industry was pretty paralyzed because we're suddenly asked to develop all these new protocols and policies, also needing to address things like PPE shortages and all that less fun stuff. But I would say what surprised me actually was the opportunity for new partnerships and collaborations globally. So for example, because when COVID first hit, there was very little advice in North America, for especially for community and home-based care, we actually sought out advice and feedback from leaders in home health and other areas of the world where COVID hit much earlier. And now what's beautiful is we still have relationships with those people and we're able to essentially co-create the future in a way together. And I would say all of this, though, we would not have been able to navigate it without uh, weekly community calls from uh, CEO, um, we wouldn't have been able to navigate the emotional roller coaster that it was without the support from the community. Well, thank you for all your building, but uh, also thanks to your employees and to your network for what they are doing on the front lines of this crisis. I don't think we can thank health workers enough. Nita, you're in a very different business, but no doubt the pandemic has disrupted it in all sorts of surprising ways. What have you learned about yourself as an entrepreneur over the last six, seven months? Well, you know, just to give a little bit of a recap, my business, you know, we were expanding and things were growing and we had just moved into a new warehouse uh, beginning of this year in February, got announced at the CEO Summit as a venture for 2020. And then um, suddenly COVID hit and we saw a drop in revenues of 90%. We were in a crisis. You know, I was new to the community, so I wasn't quite sure how to ask CEO for help. And there's often a lot of research that says women in general don't often ask for help. And I was definitely in that, you know, cohort that didn't really ask. But, you know, what did I learn out of all of this? That there's a level of resilience that when you do have support behind you, it's easier to ask the question. You know, I had so many closed doors uh, before as a woman and also as a woman of color that I just felt like don't even bother asking because there's going to be another closed door and just put your head to the grindstone and just do what you can. And actually, when your revenue drops that much, you can't. You need to have someone in your corner that understands you, that understands your business model, that understands 
uh, your struggle points. And so resilience is one, but also the need to ask for help was a huge um, learning for me. We're trying to understand in this conversation and through this episode, how the country can rebuild better, especially through female entrepreneurship. And I wonder if you both could step back from your particular businesses and think about what Canada needs to double down on, to borrow the cliche, going into 2021 and beyond to ensure that we are scaling, not just uh, supporting or networking. Nita, if I could stay with you, what do you think our priorities should be over the next uh, over the next couple of years? I mean, one for me, I would say with a young child that I think childcare is absolutely essential. I think when the pandemic hit, I feel like every you know traditional household went to their basic roles from previous years. So there was a breadwinner and there was a someone who took care of the child. And generally that role went to women. Now, if you're a woman in business, you had to juggle both. And I do have a very supportive husband, but generally the child would come to me more often. And I do think if we're going to move forward and if this is going to happen again, I think there needs to be some some really serious conversations. And I think the government has to be able to listen to what female entrepreneurs are saying rather than assuming that they know what is going to be the best um, outcome. And and this is a very general question, but do female entrepreneurs need a different model or at least form of childcare than, say, female employees of established organizations? That's such a great question. I would say yes, because I think there is definitely a different mindset with entrepreneurs versus someone who's going to a work who can now work from home and that there's different things that they're still getting their job done, but they have little uh, breaks in between. I think as an entrepreneur, you are 100% trying to save the business. And unfortunately, something has to give. And I would love to see, you know, the way um, education pods started to build. If there was funding available and I could get the right person to take care of my child as opposed to having a child care center, I think would have worked much better for me. Yeah, because entrepreneurs, you don't have set hours. Uh, you, you don't even have an off button, probably. No. Always uh, uh, low, medium, fast. Chenny, what do you think we need to focus on when we look into uh, the years ahead? I think that actually what we need to let go of is this concept that women play the primary role of caregiving and men play the primary role of earning because it's setting us up to fail. I would say that in the average household, even if you ask the most progressive families, most people will say that in their hearts of hearts, they value the person who makes more money than the person who provides more care. It's not our fault that this bias exists. It's just been how it has been for a really, really long time. And frankly, I think that, you know, a lot of these systems, they don't work for most people anymore. We live in this time now where technology and automation exists at such an unprecedented level that there's no need for these archaic gender roles. Um, so yeah, so I actually think that we should we should be challenging them really to think about how can we help people shift from a scarcity mindset to an abundance mindset instead of thinking of how can I get by with the circumstance that surrounds me now? Instead, we should be thinking of, well, how can we shift some of this conditioning and these archaic structures so that we can truly enable both genders 
to thrive together. It's such an interesting point. How do we think about abundance when it comes to to family supports, because it's also elder care or uh, care of other uh, relatives or or neighbors. How do we sort of bring an abundance mindset to that when it makes so many people feel crushed that they just don't have the time or the emotional bandwidth? I mean, that's the elephant in the room, right? <laughs> that's a hard thing to address. But what I do know is that powerful questions can go a really long way. So I'll give you an example in our business. So when COVID first hit, we had a bit of a drop in activity just because no one in the ecosystem was sure how to engage with services. So if you're coming from a scarcity mindset, you would, as someone on my team, you'd be thinking of, okay, how can we get our patients and stakeholders to re-engage in services the way it was done before as closely as possible? But instead we thought, what would this look like if we co-created our COVID strategy with patients, their families, and care funders? And when you approach those two questions, you just get completely different outcomes. I think the challenge is, how can you help people give themselves permission to explore questions in that way? I want to get both your thoughts on how we think differently about supporting entrepreneurs we're going to probably have more entrepreneurs, partly out of necessity, coming out of uh, this crisis. There's going to be fewer jobs, probably, and therefore people will have to create their own opportunities. There also may be a lot more opportunities, which entrepreneurs can seize on and, and thrive. Early stages of recovery create great opportunities. But when we think about the significant number of women, particularly, who will be either out of work or underemployed, looking into 2021. I wonder what you both think about what we need to do to support them. And if I can add to that, particularly women who may not be coming from a socioeconomically well-positioned background, because a lot of the jobs being lost out there are at the lower end, they're in the service sector. Uh, they may be great jobs uh, and enormously important, but whole sectors have shrunk and those jobs are going with them and not coming back anytime soon. Jenny, maybe we can start with you to give us a sense of how we can think differently about supporting female entrepreneurs. So I think one thing that we can do is create new collaboration pathways. So helping people who are interested in entrepreneurship be able to have visibility to the insight around what is happening. So, so some data, some problem identification around how our communities have shifted. And then I think the second part is around how do you help women entrepreneurs, especially those who were less socially economically privileged, to be able to access organizations, partnerships, funding. Because I think that most, most young women I talk to these days who are interested in starting a company, they do it because they would score like five out of five on a personality test on altruism. <laughs> so let's let's help them do that. Let's help them be able to think that entrepreneurship is a viable career pathway. Because um, when you think of like entrepreneurship, right? You think of like, it's kind of like the starving artist. It's like, okay, well, you know, let's start buying mass amounts of ramen noodles and cutting our household budgets. Like that's the narrative that entrepreneurship has today. So I'm just thinking, like, what would a bit more structure, a bit more support look like at scale? Nita, what would you suggest we need to 
do to think differently about supporting entrepreneurs? You talked about childcare quite passionately. Uh, what, what, what else do we need to consider? I would also say just the physical structure of entrepreneurship is really built about male businesses and male thinking. You know, for years, we've tried to fit women's businesses into that paradigm, and it doesn't fit. If we really want women to succeed, and especially women of color or immigrants or entrepreneurs that don't fit that general stereotype of what an entrepreneur looks like, we need to change our paradigm. I mean, I can give you examples of when I first started. Now, I was born in India. I grew up in Ottawa. I never really felt racism. I do remember my father at a young age saying, you know, education is very important. You've got to try it three times harder to succeed. And, you know, because you're not the right color, uh, you're not born in Canada, and you're a woman. And, and I said, no, 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 it's not like that. It's really, it's not like that. Everyone has equal opportunity in Canada. And for the most part, I felt that. I went to, you know, a school. I didn't have any issues. I went to a great university. I had job offers. All of that succeeded until I started my business. And then suddenly everything changed. I would go in to seek funding. And what I was told was, oh, your community has done very well. You should go ask them for money. And I thought, my community is not, is, is my community not Ottawa? And, and I have, like very typical of most immigrants, uh, tend to be a saver. And so, you know, I didn't have a huge mortgage. I still don't. I, I pay off my debt, all of those types of things. And so what I was told was, well, use your own money. And I thought, but you're not saying the same thing to the men that are coming in here looking to start businesses. I do remember at one point even having someone tell me, oh, don't go to a bank. They'll never give you money. For a startup and for someone who's doing lunch containers, I mean, that's not scalable. That's not, you know, it's, it's, it's cute in their eyes. It's a cute business. And you should, your goal should be to go to the next craft sale. If I had a vision that was very different from that, all I got was roadblocks. And so I ended up going to my bank. I had a long history with my bank. And I basically just said, I just want to keep my two things separate. I've got a business account and a personal account. I didn't come in with a business plan or anything. It was really just, let me just separate these two accounts. The woman at the bank said, tell me about your business. And I spoke to her just as a conversation. She said, well, can I give you a, a cash injection to start your business? I thought, oh my God, it's about relationships and women do business very, very, very differently. And for me, CEO has been a lifeline because there aren't those same roadblocks that I've seen everywhere else. You know, when I was looking for a manufacturer, for example, I was really looking at a, a manufacturer that didn't use child labor. And I was told, well, why do you care? Business is about low cost and high profit. And I said, well, that's not my business model. And I want to make sure that kids here benefit, but not on the backs of kids over there. And that seemed very unusual. But if you talk to most women, they do have this global perspective of not wanting to hurt others, that business can also be about caring about the world and still be profitable. So Nita, listening to you talk so compellingly and passionately, I hear echoes of the early conversations from Silicon Valley, where inventors and innovators said, you know, they don't get us and we need to finance ourselves, but also go about things differently. We need to support each other. And from that grew networks and what are now some of the world's best VC firms. And it makes me wonder if we need, and maybe this is what CEO is getting at, if we need kind of a Silicon Valley mindset without 
kind of the more negative sides of the Silicon Valley mindset to really scale what female entrepreneurs can do in this country. 100%. I would agree with that. I think it really needs to be um, a vision that every business is scalable, a vision that every woman is capable, given the proper supports. And some women don't want to have a scalable business or they don't want to have a, a, an international business, but the option should be there. And, and it just wasn't when I was starting. What I loved is that CEO just, they saw my vision and they supported it and said, how can we help? And, and that's a very different mindset. How can we help? Such a powerful question. Jenny. Okay, so this is going to be maybe a little bit unpopular of a statement, but I actually think that the Silicon Valley ideal of a 20 to 40 times return, it's just not sustainable without screwing someone else over. Why do we have to scale in that way? If that makes sense for your particular business model, for the specific audience and user base that you're trying to service, great, perfect. But to expect that level of return for every type of business out there, especially when it comes to work that is more around the caring and support of humans, such as healthcare, education, and so on, you just can't realistically expect the same level of return. It's like, imagine if someone said to you, like, hey, you know what, John, let's go open a hospital right now, and I want a 40x return on my first year. I don't think that is such a controversial statement, Jenny, because in some ways what you're describing is kind of in management speak or consultants speak the triple bottom line. And it's funny how many bigger organizations contort themselves to display and hold themselves to account over a triple bottom line. And many entrepreneurs like you just do it naturally. And we probably need to approach the way we measure companies big and small with different metrics, which I think we're starting to do. But boy, it's early hours, not just early days in that journey. Nita, you, you've talked a couple of times about the challenge of asking for help. What do you advise younger female entrepreneurs to think about in themselves to overcome that, that hurdle? I would tell every young entrepreneur to, to know their worth. You have a set of skills. I mean, when you go for a job interview, they basically ask you, you know, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? You should know that innately, what are your strengths? And no one can tell you otherwise. And so for me, it was, I knew I had won several awards in marketing. You know, after I left the pharmaceutical world, I became a business consultant to pharma. And so I knew I had a business sense. And so when people would end up telling me, no, what you need to do is do it like this. And it would constantly point me in a different direction. I would walk away quietly, but internally, I always knew that I do know what I'm talking about. So I would just say to young girls starting, really know your worth. You're going to have a lot of objections left, right, and center, but know what you're capable of and find the community that will support what you're thinking. Jenny, what would you advise your younger self if you were starting out again? I think I would advise my younger self to learn how to like myself sooner. <laughs> um, because I think that and what I mean by like yourself is you know yourself and you like what you see and that uh, you develop a sense of a gut. It just makes decision making so much easier. Every woman has gone through the scenario of like, okay, while well, spending way too much time with the wrong investors, trying to pitch the wrong investors or spending way too much time in procurement with the wrong customers. And I, I, I honestly believe that we inside of us have this 
like compass that can help speed up those, let's just say, dead ends or wrong turns. Um, but we have to learn how to listen to them in order to be able to really activate that. Um, so yeah, just like think about like, well, what reflect on on who you are, what you stand for, why that is that you stand for. Really get hard and true about your truth and what you want in the world and all of that. Because once you have a stronger foundation for yourself, just like all the other stuff just gets a lot easier. You know, you mentioned the rejection and all of that. Like it, it gets way easier afterwards. That's such a quietly profound insight that you both shared about the importance for entrepreneurs especially female entrepreneurs, to know their strength, to know your strength, and to be confident in that. We talk about entrepreneurship a little too often in, in clinical terms, that you need a certain kind of investment, the procurement question, uh, the scalability question. It sounds like an engineering challenge when entrepreneurship is very much gut. It's, it's human. And listening to you I'm reflecting on the power of human networks in that, which is what CEO is. That's what we've been talking about. And how those networks, whether it's CEO or others like them, will be really important in the recovery for female entrepreneurs, not only to network and get to know investors and customers, but to get to know themselves more, which is so important for an entrepreneur. It's a very lonely pursuit uh, for for any entrepreneur. So to be able to to get to know other entrepreneurs, but to get to know yourselves. Ocheni and Nita, thank you so much for being part of RBC Disruptors and building the great companies that will add to our recovery. Thanks, John. Thank you for having us. My guests today have been Nita Tandon, the founder and CEO of Dalcini Stainless Incorporated, and Cheni Shia, the co-founder of GotCare. And of course, earlier, we heard from Vicky Saunders, the founder of CEO. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is RBC Disruptors. If you're interested, RBC supports women entrepreneurs through various sponsorships in Canada. CEO, RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards, Stand Up Ventures, Fortune's Most Powerful Women, and Dress for Success. Plus, we have a partnership with Catalyst Canada, a global nonprofit research and advocacy organization dedicated to accelerating progress for women through workplace inclusion. For more on all these fantastic initiatives, check out the show notes for this podcast. Join us next time when we're going to talk about one of the most insidious impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, the shifting of many mental health care services online. So we're asking the experts, how healthy is it to seek treatment through tech? Join the conversation in honor of World Mental Health Day next time on RBC Disruptors. RBC Disruptors is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more RBC Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.